From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on one of our 32-plus affiliates and counting. Thanks to Syndication Networks, by the way. Chris and Randy, thanks for all your hard work and loyalty and support. Uh, hello to all of you listening in on the podcast at TalkZone.com. Howdy to all of you listening through the Conspiracy Show app. Uh, fabulous and free download. And uh, while I'm on that, a special thanks to uh, Sharon Forster, uh, who worked so hard on developing our app, the Conspiracy Show app. It is, as I say, fabulous. It's free, and I'm so proud of it. So if you haven't gotten it, please download it. Again, it's available on Google Play if you've got an Android, and iTunes, of course, for you iPhone users. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes to The Conspiracy Show, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is standing by. It's that time of the month uh, for our Paranormal News Roundup, and Rosemary is with us for the full hour tonight uh, to discuss a paranormal encounter that's uh, just recently come to, uh, to light in Russia. Uh, it's interesting, now that the, the yoke of, of communism has supposedly uh, been lifted from the, uh, from the motherland, and, and many of them are re-embracing um, uh, religion, uh, people are starting to talk again over there about the, the paranormal activity in their lives. And uh, we have one such report uh, tonight. We'll also talk about the ghost island in New York City. Uh, get this, there is um, it's a, just a tiny speck of an island up there near the Bronx, near Rikers Island in the East River. It's about 20 acres, and uh, uh, it's where they sent uh, new arrivals to the United States that had some disease, tuberculosis or leprosy. Uh, and uh, people were sent there, you know, uh, against their will. I mean, it wasn't voluntary. And it was pretty much a death sentence. If you were sent to, uh, it's called North Border Island, and it's been abandoned for many, many, many years. Typhoid Mary was there. Anyway, she'll tell us all about the ghost island in New York City, uh, and uh, and much more. Then in the second half of the uh, the hour, we'll talk about Thornwood Castle in uh, Washington State. It's an actual castle, and it has lots of haunting activity. Thornwood. Uh, next week on the program, Canada's Edgar Casey, Dr. Douglas Cottrell, will be here with some predictions for 2017. Uh, plus, former police reporter Scott Reeder, uh, now with NPR, National Public Radio. He has a new true crime-style podcast uh, premiering this month on NPR, and he'll be along to talk about. We've got some, he has some great true crime cases to talk about. Uh, that's all part of uh, the program next week. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the world's leading experts on the paranormal, with more than 60 books published on a wide range of subject matter. Her most recent titles include "Haunted by the Things You Love" and "Demon Haunted," uh, both co-authored with John Zaffis, the uh, the star of the Haunted Collector. Uh, the Zozo Phenomenon, and Ouija Gone Wild. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Well, I'm doing well, Richard. It's starting to be the busy time for me already, just after the first of the year, going off for events already. I heard a bird tells me you're getting ready to jump on a plane and go to Australia. Well, that's right. Down under for the first time in a long time. I have an afterlife conference followed by a Close Encounters UFO conference uh, in Byron that I'll be speaking at, and uh, then we're, uh, Joe and I will be doing a little R&R for a few days in Sydney. Is Australia a hot spot for UFO activity? They get a fair amount, actually, yes, and uh, a lot of paranormal activity as well. 
Uh, now, I've never been to the western side of Australia, just the east coast, um, but um, there are a fair number of sightings just uh, on that eastern perimeter. All right. We, um, we've we been hearing so much about uh, all this uh, you know, Russian hacking, and uh, this is kind of a, a turn of the tables because, I, well, I guess really since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we're starting to get more and more information coming out of the former Soviet Union in the realm of the paranormal, uh, and some of these stories happened quite a while ago, but we're only hearing about them now. And, and one such case uh, comes from Moscow all the way back uh, in uh, the fall of 2000 from a researcher by the name of Albert Rosales uh, involving a humanoid encounter in Russia. What do you hear? What do you know? Well, actually, I, I would call this something other than a humanoid encounter, but the nut of it is uh, a woman goes out looking for mushrooms in the woods, and uh, she uh, gets lost, sits down on a tree stump, uh, wondering how she's going to get back to the village. And suddenly this strange figure wearing a coat, um, a cloak, actually, uh, and a military uniform just materializes out of the woods and uh, shows her how to get back to the village. And then he pulls the, the hood uh, off his head and she is absolutely flabbergasted to see that it is her long-lost boyfriend who disappeared in Afghanistan in the early 1980s. And there was kind of a mystical light around him, Purple, some purple uh, light came out of his eyes. Uh, she got all choked up, couldn't uh, talk. He reaches out to her, and uh, then she it's like she goes unconscious. And when she regains consciousness, She's not sitting on the tree stump anymore, but she is actually en route uh, back to the uh, village, and she can see the lights of the village ahead of her. Now, was she frightened, or was she just confused? I mean, what what was her reaction, do we know, her, aside from fainting? <laughs> <laughs> her first reaction was uh, she was just very surprised, and she didn't feel afraid. It's like uh, she was sort of caught up in something like, well, what on earth is going on here? And when people have these kinds of encounters, what I think happened here is, I wouldn't call it a humanoid encounter because um, that's kind of a category that's reserved for mysterious creatures that have a human-like shape. This was really an apparition of, of her boyfriend who probably died in Afghanistan. You know, he disappeared decades ago. And so in a moment of crisis, he materializes like an angel and uh, helps her uh, find her way back to, um, to to the village. And it's very similar to uh, what we call mysterious stranger encounters, where people are in a jam, sometimes they are lost, uh, they don't know what to do, and a mysterious stranger suddenly appears and has kind of some unusual aura or energy or light about him and solves the problem, helps them out, and then vanishes. And um, that's very similar here. You could even make the case that maybe this was an angel in the guise of her boyfriend, but um, we'll never know. And uh, I think she had a genuine encounter uh, of some sort of an apparitional figure in a moment of need. My other, uh, not to be sarcastic here, but um, she, I, I'm be, I'd be very curious to know what kind of mushrooms she was looking for, hint, hint. <laughs> and my, well, my sure technical it's... producer is nodding in agreement. <laughs> 
I'm sure there's a skeptic out there who will raise that very question. <laughs> well, you know that it is a legitimate question, and but uh, you know experiments uh, done with uh, psilocybin and things like that doesn't necessarily discount the the existence of the supernatural. It may be that it just opens up certain regions of the brain that are receptive to to seeing things the rest of us don't. I, I agree. Now, I, I've never used any substances like that, um, but just based upon um, anecdotal evidence and research and, you know, people I know who've done this sort of uh, experimentation, I do agree that it's what Aldous Huxley said, you know, it, it opens up the doors of perception. And they're not uh, fantasy experiences as uh, glimpses into other realities. So let's say for the sake of things that maybe she had ingested something that, you know, altered her state of consciousness. It enabled her then to have an experience that uh, helped her out. Yes, because by all accounts, she probably would have uh, perished out in the, because she was lost, right? She was definitely lost. And she might have found her way back, but uh, um, she might have um, not been able to before dark and um she was in serious danger at that point have you been to russia by by the way have you have you been over there to do an investigation i haven't done any investigations there i was there in 1985 i've been there once and this was under the uh, the gorbachev era and things were starting to loosen up but um there still uh were these beliefs against the paranormal because there was um, communism held that all that was tied into religious stuff and paranormal didn't exist and um, it took a long time for these stories to to start seeping out and as you pointed out um, we're just now starting to hear about a lot of them well closer to home uh, the mysterious ghost island of New York City uh, this to me was a fascinating story never heard this one before and I'd love to get your take on it it's very much like a lot of other places that paranormal investigators love to go. Um, derelict uh, medical facilities and prisons. This was not a prison. It was basically a medical facility. And back in the late 19th century, when immigrants were still pouring into America and they were all being processed uh, through New York on, on that side of the country, um, a lot of them were sick and epidemics. Uh, uh, typhoid and smallpox and tuberculosis uh, would run rampant through the immigrant community and um, also people who were already living there. Well, it was the practice of the time to ship people like that off to some remote area where they could not infect other people. And uh, we still have sanatoriums like that around America. Waverly Hills in Louisville, Kentucky is one of the most famous, but somewhere outside of a population center. So what could be better than an island in the East River? And it's near a, a prison island, by the way, too, Rikers Island. Right, which up is near the Bronx, occupied. up in the Bronx. That's right. And this island now is abandoned, but uh, for many decades, uh, it housed these sick people, most of whom were poor or the newly immigrated, to America, they were in wretched conditions. Some of them never left. They died and were buried there. Families never heard uh, about their fate. And uh, you can imagine what kind of residual haunting uh, phenomena would still be there. Where, where we have these places where, where there was suffering, um, unhappy death, uh, and a concentration of that over a period of time, 
there's a lot of residual haunting energy that can still be experienced today. No doubt. And, this is, uh, um, it's called North Brother Island, and it's a tiny, just a speck of an island, 20 acres. But I'd never heard of it before. 20 acres up, as you say, near Rikers Island in, in, in the Bronx in the East River. And um, it's, it's, been a, this, it's not well known no. because nobody's allowed on it. Uh, you know, it's not a tourist place. Uh, I think they allow, um, you know, uh, nature researchers to go there. Um, but um, to my knowledge, I don't think it's been paranormally investigated. And, you know, Richard, I'm not sure that even I would want to go to a place like this because um, I have heard that uh, things like tuberculosis and especially smallpox, uh, those viruses can remain active. And uh, here uh, you've got people who were buried on the island. Uh, some of those grave sites might um have been very shallow, easily disturbed. Now you've got a very old facility that's really not very healthy to be in. It's um, It would be a very unhealthy place to investigate, but I'm sure you'd get a lot of results. Oh, no doubt, and I'm with you. I mean, I wouldn't want to set foot on this place, as you mentioned. Uh, tuberculosis, uh, even leprosy, uh, diphtheria, typhus, um, you name it. Anybody that uh, got off the ship's and um, showed any symptoms. I mean, this was these were forced quarantines. These were not voluntary. These people were taken there probably under guard, and anyone who tried to escape, I'm sure, would be severely uh, dealt with. Well, yes, they were rounded up uh, and herded off to the island. If you were sick and, and you had to go, you were taken away from your family, and the conditions there were very poor. Um, I just want to mention that um, this island housed a very famous person by the name of Typhoid Mary. Ah, and nice. she was a cook. She was a cook in New York, and she was a rare person who was able to transmit typhoid without showing symptoms and becoming sick herself. And so people who ate her food would get sick with typhoid. Well, they shipped her off to the island, and she insisted that... Um, this was an error that she was not responsible for people getting typhoid. They allowed her to uh, to leave on the condition that she not go back to being a cook, which she promptly violated. She changed her name and went back to cooking, and people started dying again. And uh, so she, she wound up spending the last of her days there and dying uh, on North Island, um, having um, um, transmitted the uh, typhoid fever to at least 50-some people. Oh, my. Uh, As you say, well, uh, it was a death sentence pretty much. I mean, the mortality rate, the fatality rate when one was uh, dispensed to North Border was pretty, pretty, pretty high. So not too many got off. As you say, it would be a hot spot uh, for paranormal investigations, but uh, I'm with you. I don't think I'd want to set foot on the ghost island of New York City. Rosemary, we'll take a time out, come back. More stories as part of our paranormal news roundup on the other side, right here on The Conspiracy Show. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with paranormal investigator Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and her website once again is visionaryliving.com. Visionaryliving.com. All right. I remember back in the 70s, a couple of stories uh, came out about these cargo cults. In fact, I think the uh, the film The Gods Must Be Crazy was kind of based on this idea of cargo cults, where something was. would fly off the back of a plane, uh, fall out of a plane, or maybe a, a plane would crash on some remote island, maybe in the South Pacific, 
And whatever artifacts that the locals would find, because it fell from the sky, these would, would be primarily pretty primitive cultures, they assumed it was from the gods. And uh, here we have another one of these uh, cargo cult cases um, going back to, um, well, when was it now? We're talking about um, uh, the Republic of Vanuatu, um, which is where? In the South Pacific again? It's actually uh, not too far from where I'm, I'm headed. It's off the uh, northeast coast of Australia. It's uh, just a little further down from Malaysia and the Philippines. And um, this goes back to uh, probably the 1800s when uh, these islands were colonized by, uh, by the English and the French. And uh, the Christian mis- missionaries came in and um, uh, the... Um, oppression of the natives was was very very severe and um, they had they had kind of a, a hero back then who figures into the cargo cult later on which uh, really sprang out of world war two um, there were there were vestiges of that before that but the cargo cult really took hold uh, during the wartime era but this john Frum character uh, was supposedly a savior a local savior who uh, would promise people that if they turned away from the European oppressors and the European ways, that uh, abundance and prosperity would, uh, would be theirs. And his name seems to be um, a corruption of the phrase John from Jesus Christ or um, a reference to John the Baptist. They called him John from. Ah. And so there was a cult around him, and he was said to uh, reside in the, in the island volcano. Uh, and the day would come, and we find this motif in mythology a lot, uh, where a local hero, when the day comes, when his people need him, uh, the local hero emerges from wherever he's been, um, uh, whether it's the mists of Avalon or a volcano or, or um, somewhere else, and uh, leads the people to safety or prosperity or freedom, uh, whatever. And so there is this mythology around John Frum. Well, in the 1940s, when the soldiers came and started occupying these islands for military advantage, um, they put up all these buildings, they built airstrips, and these cargo planes came and delivered things. Uh, and uh, after the war, uh, everybody left. Uh, all of the, uh, the Westerners left. And this cargo cult started up uh, with the idea that, well, if certain rituals could take place if they imitated the soldiers maybe that would bring more of these mysterious birds in the sky who would drop um, the bounty of the cargo with food and supplies and things like that right so the natives built these um, uh, kind of um, makeshift airstrips and uh, towers and whatnot and went through rituals to try and and bring the sky gods back right and what happened and, Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> They're still waiting. The Great Disappointment, part two. <laughs> right. Uh, no, no cargo has been dropping from the sky. And um, uh, if, it, if, if it's pointed out that, well, you know, this is not, not a real thing, you know, it's like uh, a fantasy. Um, you know, there are a lot of people on these islands who still believe that um, that some version of this is going to happen. So every year there are these very sacred rituals uh, to invoke the bounty of the sky gods and the return of this this hero, John Frum. 
And uh, it's amazing that it's still going on today. But these these are very isolated uh, islands. Right. There's even there's a fascinating case. Um, the island of New Hanover in the uh, it's called the Bismarck Archipelago. I'm not sure where that is. Again, I'm guessing it's somewhere in the South Pacific. But another cargo cult arose there back in 1968, claiming that the true secret of the cargo was known only to one one man, and that was President Lyndon Johnson. And the um, the natives on this island revolted against their Australia. Yeah, it was in uh, the South Pacific. They re- revolted against their Australian rulers, and um, they saved up seventy five thousand dollars, sent a letter to Johnson offering to buy him and make him king of New Hanover. <laughs> but strangely enough, he didn't accept. Uh, oh, how could he have passed it up? <laughs> and um, well, uh, sorry, I was just going to say cult formed yeah. around uh, uh, Prince Philip in the nineteen seventies. He visited. Uh, uh, this village, and um, he became the the uh, cult hero, and um, the figure who was going to deliver, you know, this new world, so to speak. It's, it's very strange, uh, but I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, these are very remote areas, and so very little um, mingles in with their beliefs and. Uh, cultural changes to uh, f- for these sorts of things to you know fade into the distant past. Sure, you, you take an isolated civilization, and all of a sudden something drops from the sky like a Coca-Cola bottle, and uh, you know it's 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 made of material that you haven't seen before, and and it falls from the sky. You know, it's not hard to understand why something like that could happen, especially again in these uh, these isolated island uh, remote islands in the, uh, the South Pacific or, or wherever. Uh, I want to talk about something I know that's uh, near and dear to you. You've penned encyclopedias about uh, this particular topic, and that has to do uh, with people who believe they have seen an angel, and uh, perhaps our first story out of the shoot tonight about the, um, uh, the Russian woman sort of fits in this mold. But uh, let's talk about it. There's a, an interesting story in the, uh, the Daily Mail online um, about a... Uh, um, a, um, a former squadron leader by the name of Tom Rounds, who believes Angel saved his life while flying. And there's some other great examples here as well. It's an interesting story, uh, a survey that indicates that approximately one in ten people who were surveyed in Britain uh, believe in angels. And I actually think the figure is a lot higher, but uh, some people don't want to admit to believing in angels. But the story about Tom Rounds is uh, very interesting. It also fits in, uh, in a way into the mysterious stranger of the hand of God um, motifs as well. He's, he's on a training mission. Um, and this was in the uh, 1980s. He was a navigator uh, on this, um, sounds like a cargo plane of some sort, or a, um, a troop plane. And um, they, they were coming into land, and uh, there was such poor visibility that they could not see. And they got as low as 250 feet off the ground, flying completely blind. And all of a sudden, he had a this visceral physical uh, feeling that something was dreadfully wrong and the plane needed to pull sharply up and bank to the left to avoid something that they could not see. And so he urged the pilot to do so, and they did. And uh, they uh, they discovered that they were in danger of flying into the side of a mountain. And if they had not taken that last-minute extreme measure... Uh, they very well could have crashed and, and all been killed. 
and he felt that um, it was an angel who came to his rescue and prompted him in that way. Other people have had similar uh, stories. Um, uh, for example, I've, I've collected a number of them, and I have them in some of my books, where people have felt steering wheels yanked out of their hands uh, and turned uh, in order to avoid some catastrophic road accident. And uh, so who, who does that? Is it an angel? Is it the hand of God? Is it uh, something else? Was this Sergeant Round's Sorry, in my Intuition. case, in my case, it was the driving instructor sitting to my right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I, I can't. I, I can't imagine what it's like to be a driving instructor. <laughs> you you better have Nervous some guardian feel. angels. Yes, you better have some guardian angels. Well, you you okay. mentioned people having a, sort of this a physical sensation, and it's interesting because in this Daily Mail story, it says that one in ten Britons claim to have seen or heard an angel double those who said the same six years ago. So it seems to be it's on the increase, or people feel more comfortable about admitting to it. I think so. And uh, in, in some research that I did uh, a while back, because in America we, we had uh, a real angel craze that went through most of the 90s, and uh, that's when some of my first books on angels came out. And um, the research I did show that even as early as mid, or as late, I should say, as late as mid-century, many people were still reluctant to acknowledge that they believed in angels or thought they'd had an experience of angels because they felt no underpinning of support from religion or society in that regard. They, they were worried that they were going to be laughed at. And so I am glad to see that more people are coming out uh, with these um, uh, beliefs and experiences and uh, people may put different interpretations on it. You know, one person may say it was an angel. Another person may say it was my intuition, my higher self. Someone else could say it was the hand of God. Because sometimes these agents, whatever the intervening agent is, it's not seen. It's felt. And people do have these physical reactions. So um, a very interesting experience uh, that he had, something uh, divine uh, came to his rescue, and if not for him and being able to prevail on the pilot, all would have been lost. Uh, is there a particular time of year? I don't know if any studies have been done about this, but is there a time of year when people have more encounters with angels? I'm not aware of any uh, time periods like that. I mean, certainly people think about angels more at the holiday time. Yes, yeah, that's what uh, I was wondering. Because of, yeah, the, and I, uh, so... We think about these things, we're more likely to talk about them. But the stories that I have collected over the decades, they they happen uh, all throughout the year. I do have a book on, on Christmas-oriented stories. It's called um, Christmas Angels, Two Stories of Hope and Healing. They all have a Christmas theme. But these um, angelic rescues and interventions can happen any time. Uh, and it's usually a, a crisis moment. It may not be something like this where... Um, disaster is, is seconds away. It could be a life crisis of some sort, uh, a turning point in life, or feeling like you're at a crossroads and something major has to change. It can also be those kinds of crises that then uh, seem to open the door for um, something from another realm to intervene uh, with some healing or a solution that the individual feels that they ne- 
is absolutely right. And do we each have uh, our own guardian angel, or is is that just pop culture? I do believe in guardian angels uh, that uh, follow us throughout life from from birth until we die, and also that we're surrounded by as as many angels as we need. Uh, There there are other angels who come to our aid uh, with help and guidance and uh, and healing. The more you contemplate angels, um, incorporate um, uh, linking to them in meditation, uh, the more likely you are to feel their presence uh, throughout a lot of activities and more than one presence as well. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. When we come back, uh, we're going to focus on uh, one of your earlier investigations, which centers around Thornwood Castle in the great state of Washington. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, VisionaryLiving.com, her website. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator who joins us the second Sunday of every month right here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Rosemary, let's uh, f- focus on one of your earlier investigations. And uh, this is uh, Thornwood Castle up in uh, in Washington State, um, which I know at, at one time was a real hotbed uh, for paranormal investigators. And things have kind of quieted down there supposedly and now it's being offered up as a as a wedding venue uh which begs sort of the question as to whether a place can become unhaunted uh but before we get to that let's let's get the particulars on thornwood castle Uh, it is an interesting place and i investigated there a few years ago uh it's got a tremendous amount of activity in it and it really is of current interest today and i've written about this recently because uh, we've seen this in the paranormal where places that have been um, highly active and have attracted a lot of investigations suddenly want to be off the paranormal map. They want to become unhaunted. And this is, uh, I wouldn't call it a trend, but um, I've, I've been seeing this a lot lately. And uh, so uh, it's um, a very current interest in the paranormal community. Thornwood Castle was built uh, right around uh, the early 20th century by a very wealthy businessman. He was a Quaker. Uh, his name was Chester Thorne, and he did really well for himself. And it was the custom of the time to show your wealth in your house and your furnishings. And so the wealthy would spare no dime to uh, bring in the best of the best. And uh, he built this brick mansion. He imported uh, antiquities from uh, Europe and England, uh, real stained glass windows, even an entire oak staircase. Uh, some of these things uh, went back to the uh, 14th century. Paintings, uh, artifacts. Um, it would have cost in today's times $30 million to build. Wow. Even the bricks that went into building the manor apparently came from an old uh, English castle. 400 years old, yes. He was, uh, he was absolutely mesmerized by the wealthy of, of England and Europe and how they had built their homes, and he wanted to duplicate that. Uh, this was a 100-acre tract along a lake called American Lake, which is uh, just south of Tacoma. Tacoma is a little south of Seattle. 
And so he and his wife and daughters, wife Anna and daughter Anita, uh, lived this lavish lifestyle. They had parties and um, a lot of social goings-on there, uh, just really beautifully done. Uh, well, Chester Thorne died in the 1920s. Oh, it, at its peak, it had 54 rooms, um, 28 bedrooms, and 22 bathrooms. Imagine wow. having the staff to take care of that. Wouldn't want to paint that place. <laughs> so Chester died in the 20s, and um, uh, his uh, daughter, uh, his wife, uh, left the house. It was too lonely for her. Um, the house actually passed to uh, the daughter and her second husband, Anita, and um, her name at that time was Stone. So Anita Stone and her husband got it. Um, they left for a while, came back. Um, Mrs. Thorne came back and died in the house in 1954. And then Anita, uh, now Chester had specified in his will that the, the house was never to be subdivided. The land was not to be subdivided. This was in his will. So she, what does she do? She sells it to a developer. <laughs> Hello. What is a developer going to do? But subdivide. Immediately to court and break the will, which is what he did. He broke the will and started subdividing. This is so, not going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> Thornwood Castle. It's called a castle because it actually has a parapet. Uh, uh, oh, I always wondered. Oh, that's, that's what distinguishes a castle from a mere manor. So it does qualify yes. as an actual castle. You have okay. to have a parapet. Ah. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, for a while, people were living in it, and it really went downhill, went through a series of owners. And then in 2000, a very wealthy couple bought it and began to restore it. This is a historic landmark. And they lucked out, really lucked out, because um, at the time, ABC Disney Studios were looking for a place to film the Stephen King miniseries, Rose Red. And uh, they landed on Thornwood. And so part of the deal was that the studios would restore the um, castle to its 1911 condition in exchange for using it as uh, a setting for the miniseries. So a lot of the uh, the shots were done there at Thornwood Castle, and that was also used for the prequel that came out called The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer. Oh, yes. Okay, listen, Rosemary, we're going to take a time out. We'll come back, and we'll uh, continue to delve into Thornwood Castle in uh, Washington State. Paranormal investigator Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, is with us. The website, visionaryliving.com. Be sure to visit the bookstore on uh, online because she's writing books uh, even as we're speaking. Uh, over well over 65 titles now, and the hits just keep on coming. Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, uh, we're talking about the historic Thornwood Castle in Lakewood, Washington, which was constructed in the early 20th century by a very wealthy Quaker by the name of Chester Thorne. He died in the house. His wife died in the house. The house was eventually sold to a developer, and the property was divided. Uh, but the house was then restored by was it by Disney when uh, when the, they were shooting a TV series there, correct? Yes, uh, the Stephen King Rose Red miniseries. Right, Rose Red. And um, did they experience 
any hauntings while they were in production, do we know? They did. Uh, the film crew had uh, poltergeist phenomena happen, which was ongoing in the house. When um, Wayne and Deanna Robinson, who bought the house in 2000 when they moved in, things uh, would happen like lights flickering. They would find light bulbs unscrewed in certain rooms all the time. Um, there would be sounds of footsteps and uh, Chester Thorne would be seen on the grounds and in his bedroom. And so the, the film crew did experience some of that while uh, while they were shooting. So naturally, uh, paranormal people wanted to come and investigate, and I was fortunate enough myself uh, to actually have the place all to myself for a night. Really? And uh, wow. I, I had gone gone to visit the home and um, uh, introduced myself to the owners and said I would like to come back and investigate. And uh, so they arranged for me to come back the following week. When I got there, I was told that I would be the only person in the house all night long. Now, uh, there aren't t- 28 bedrooms anymore. There's, uh, there's only eight uh, rooms that have been uh, turned, or excuse me, 10 rooms that have been turned into bedrooms. But there were three floors, still a huge place. Not even a staff person was going to be there. And the Robinsons don't live there. They live in a house next door. Oh, my gosh. So, How did you feel about that? Uh, well, I was pretty creeped out at first. Um, and... Um, they said, oh, don't worry, if anything happens, um, you know, just pick up a phone and call this number and someone will come right over. So uh, there I was, wandering around uh, this uh, in- entire uh, castle uh, all night long, and things really did start to happen. Like what? I went through, uh, well, I heard footsteps, uh, I heard voices, and um, the phenomenon that with the ghostly voices is they're always somewhere else. And then when you go in the direction of the voice or to the room or, or spot where you think the voices are emanating from, the voices stop. And uh, that's uh, what happened to me. They gave me, they asked me to stay in one of the bedrooms up on the third floor. And so I spent time on all the floors. I read the diaries in all the rooms. All the rooms had diaries for the guests, and many paranormal investigators had stayed there and reported things that happened, objects um, moved about, uh, appliances like TVs and hair dryers would turn on by themselves, faucets that would turn on by themselves. There was a ghost that liked to rearrange socks of the guests in one room. Uh, and um, uh, there is an apparition that comes out of a bathroom downstairs underneath the oak staircase. Uh, supposedly, it's Anna's um, first husband that she didn't get along with. There's a story that she caught him molesting their daughter and shot him in the eye that oh, didn't dear. kill him. Oh, dear. The problem with that story is that they didn't have a daughter. They had a son. Ah, okay. But there is the ghost of a man who comes out of the bathroom and crosses uh, the floor and disappears um, <clears throat> out one one wall of the house. And uh, I was rather unsettled when I read in one diary um, that... Someone got alarmed uh, one night, and they called the emergency number, and nobody answered. Oh, no. (laughs) But the good thing about it, Richard, was that because I was the only person there, if I heard anything, I knew it wasn't somebody else. Right. It wasn't somebody else walking around. Right. I mean, you must uh, have been... Or doing something. Are you able to sleep in a situation like that, or are you up virtually all night? I was up all night, and I I really didn't want to sleep because I, I wanted to try and capture things. 
And there was quite a bit of activity on the second floor in a room called Anna's room. And this was Chester Thorne's wife's room, which looked out over the garden. It's now a bridal suite. And uh, there are two stories. One is that she would sit uh, at the window and look out on garden parties. And another story says that their daughter did that. It could have been both of them, but uh, a ghost of um, a woman is seen uh, on the settee at the window looking out over the garden. And I heard a lot of voices coming from that room. And every time I went to the room, the voices would stop. Um, I found drawers open, uh, the, the bureaus that were in the room. Uh, I walked into the room, you know, I inspected every room uh, to start. And I walked into the room and drawers were pulled open. There were footsteps on the stairs, which was kind of unnerving, really heavy, thudding footsteps. Oh, dear. And um, nothing bad happened, but it was really spooky, and it was ongoing. It went on all night. Were you able to, to tell what any of these voices were saying, or was it just muffled? It was muffled, and that's often the case, is it's a murmur. It's like hearing... A group of people speaking in low volume so that you can't make out actual words. And uh, that's a very typical phenomenon in a lot of haunted locations. These are all residual uh, sorts of things. Um, now, there's one painting on the staircase that people feel the eyes follow you up and down. And uh, I interviewed one woman who said that uh, she she was staying there with her daughter, and she remarked as they went up the stairs that she thought uh, the woman in the painting was rather homely. And when she went to go down the stairs, uh, she felt as though something pushed her, Ooh. and uh, she fell and sprained her ankle. Wow. Uh, so uh, it, it has uh, some demonstrable activity in it. If you sleep in Chester's room, uh, supposedly he will give you financial advice. That's um, a, a legend. Book me a room. Uh, maybe I should have. Maybe I should have slept in his room. I could have slept in any room. <laughs> That's but right. Here's the corker. Here's the corker. This was the best part. Uh, in the morning, I uh, was upstairs in the bedroom and uh, waiting for someone to come and start breakfast. And uh, while I was um, in my room, I heard these heavy footsteps come up the stairs again. And I thought, oh, somebody's here. I heard the footsteps go down the hall away from my room to a billiard room where a pool table was set up. And I heard balls smacking around. So I thought somebody from the staff had come up and was playing a little pool before, you know, the day got started. Right. And I immediately went down to the room to go into the room to find it completely empty not only were there no balls in motion, every, the balls were racked on the table with a cue lying across the table. Right. And yet, seconds before, I had heard balls smacking around on the table. Wow. And no one, no one was in the house, uh, but a young woman who was down in the kitchen fixing breakfast, and she said that she had not gone anywhere in the house. And had she heard it too? No. Uh, when I went down to breakfast, I told her what had happened, and she just kind of nodded like, uh, oh, yes, you know, <laughs> we get that a lot. Yeah, just another night uh, in Thornwood. <laughs> another night in Thornwood. But now they're not uh, they're not haunted anymore. Uh, and sometimes places get tired of the paranormal. Uh, they get tired of the investigators and uh, the equipment and all that. And 
Um, they are officially unhaunted. They're only haunted in the movies. Uh, and they're still a luxury uh, bed and breakfast. Uh, they cater to weddings and, and social things now, but uh, they don't want anything to do with the paranormal, and they would not respond to any of my inquiries as to why they had had a change of heart. Oh, so you're saying it's not that the house is, the house may still be haunted, it's just that they're not interested in having anyone investigate it anymore. Well, uh, so my question is, can a place actually become unhaunted? Because they're saying it's not haunted anymore. So what happens if you go there and you experience a ghost? Right, right. Uh, how, do, how do you fit that in? And another question is then, um, how much do we people contribute to hauntings? Because if you go to a place and you think it's haunted and you're hoping, expecting that maybe you'll have a spooky experience, how much are you projecting an energy that actually contributes to the manifestation of phenomena? Ah, that's so an interesting you, question. If you deny then that nothing is going on and all of that is repressed, does whatever is there, does it go away? That's an interesting and point. These are very interesting questions for uh, how and why we experience things uh, in these places and why some people don't experience things and other people do. Well, that's uh, that's curious because, I mean, how do you feel then as a paranormal investigator if, if I mean, the, the, that raises the whole question as to whether or not you as an investigator may be producing... Uh, or affecting that which you are trying to observe. I think we are, uh, and I think it gets down to a quantum um, physics thing that um, there's no such thing as a completed, completely discrete observer. As soon as you observe something, you've affected it. And the very act of investigating uh, is going to, to, I think, stir up um, whatever might be present in a place, and a lot of times I think it's dormant. Uh, and if nobody pays any attention, uh, for example, if you don't know a place is haunted, you don't believe in that sort of thing, and you don't pay, give that any energy, are you going to be haunted? Uh, well, there seem to be cases where you might be, and then other cases where you're not going to be. But if we go and investigate and we want things to happen, we are projecting this uh, literally a psychokinetic um, energy into, into the environment that is bound to have an answer back. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You mentioned that, for example, when you heard the pool table, the balls uh, smacking together, that was likely some sort of a residual phenomenon. If we're talking about a residual haunting, in other words, the ghosts, there's no consciousness there. It's just an echo of times past. You can't cleanse that, can you? I mean, you can't. I mean, that would go on forever, wouldn't it? I don't think it does, uh, although it can go on a very long time. My feeling about residual energy is that it has um, a battery life. Ah. And at some point, the battery life uh, just runs out. It's um, kind of a shell energy that's left over. It's gotten its uh, infusion from some sort of emotional energy and physical activity that uh, has occurred in a place that gets imprinted. And it, it just winds down after a while. I think that's one of the reasons why some of these um, famously haunted places uh, that are centuries old don't seem to be very active anymore. I think they, they just kind of got worn out. Uh, and um, I think that, uh, as, as we were just discussing, that investigation 
can prolong the life uh, of of, um, these uh, residual imprints. But eventually, um, they fade. Uh, People lose interest or there's a lot of renovation or something happens to a place where the energy changes markedly and those imprints just don't get the juice anymore. Well, Rosemary, I wish you a, um, a safe travels to Australia, and uh, we will talk next month. Well, thank you, Richard. Maybe I'll have some experiences down under. Oh, I have no doubt, but you will. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. All right, that's it for us. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Finzel. Back next week with a brand-new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.